Well, our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. If you don't have a Bible, we'll be happy to grab you one from the front desk out there. Or if you want, uh, it's also printed on the back side of your bulletin with a space to take notes if you're uh, the kind that does that as well. But uh, as our custom is, I'll ask that you stand if you're able to do so for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Mark writes, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, this, this very short, brief passage, uh, it contains probably one of the more memorable stories. If you've read your Bible in, in any number of times, this is probably one of those accounts in the gospel that kind of sticks fast. You know, it's a dramatic account. You try to, you know, some of the sometimes these stories that we have, especially in the gospels, tend to really make an impression. And this is one of those, I believe, that, that does that. Uh, that sticks in our minds for good reason. Um, and here in our text at the end of chapter 4, uh, you, if you're reading along with us or as we're going through the book, you, you'll, you'll probably notice that there's starting to be a shift in emphasis here, a slight shift uh, in emphasis. Up, up to this point in chapter 4, really the bulk of chapter 4 up to this point, has uh, shown us Jesus teaching in parables. You know, a parable... It, it comes from the word to throw beside or to lay beside. It's to make a comparison to something. And he's been teaching through these illustrations or parables uh, in, throughout the chapter. And three of those parables ha- have a very similar content as far as the, the main idea behind them. They've all been about the planting of seeds and seeds growing and how those things, how that picture uh, is a comparison or an analogy of, of the work of the gospel, the way the word of God works in someone's life, and even in the last parable we saw the way that the gospel has sprouted and brought forth and grown throughout the history of, of, its, of its time on this, on this earth. Uh, there Jesus tells us about the way God works through his word and about his kingdom and how those two things uh, go together. And, and we saw in some ways uh, there that in, if you look at those parables in, earlier in the chapter, you, one of the things that it, those things teach us is that God's ways are not our ways. He says that I believe in the book of Isaiah as well. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And what I mean by that is God has chosen to build his kingdom in a different way than you and I probably would have expected if we didn't know better from the scripture. For how does, how does the Lord Jesus Christ build his kingdom? He doesn't build it by, by mighty military conquering. He doesn't build it through armies. He doesn't build it through anything that's really 
at least outwardly uh, impressive, to the natural man who does not have the eyes of faith. There's nothing outwardly impressive about Christ's kingdom in a lot of ways, or in the way that it grows, or in the way that he advances it. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings, he conquers through, of all things, his word. He conquers through his word. Uh, That is, he conquers and subdues his enemies through what many think of as the foolishness that, that is preaching. The weapons of Christ's warfare aren't the same as those of the world. And it looks foolish in the eyes of the world, but preaching the gospel is how Christ primarily builds his kingdom on this earth. Well, now in our text, uh, Mark sort of changes gears, doesn't he? Not just in the fact that he's not, he's not doing parables now. He stopped that for the time being, but he changes gears. And I think part of it is, I think he doesn't want us to get the wrong idea. You know, if you spend three, three parables in, earlier in the chapter telling us that, you know, he built his kingdom through the simplicity and unimpressiveness of the preached word of God, you might get the wrong idea. You might say, well, okay, there's nothing powerful going on here. It's just talking in some ways. Preaching, in some ways, outwardly speaking, is just someone talking and, and you know, reading the scriptures and explaining them, that kind of thing. And so we might think, you know, Jesus is a king, but, you know, come on, let's be real. It's not very powerful. There's nothing really powerful going on. Uh, God isn't really doing much that's impressive there. And I think our text this morning and the, and the entire chapter that follows it uh, will serve to show us that that's not the case. Don't get the wrong idea that just because Jesus works through his word that he doesn't work powerfully or that he's not a very powerful, omnipotent king. Our text this morning and and chapter 5 after it served to show us that Jesus really is Lord and that he is the almighty son of God. That that he's the son of God is the theme of the whole book of Mark. That's the primary meaning and reason behind the whole book of Mark. But here Mark kind of draws us back from the teaching he was giving us of Christ in the parables to give us a snapshot of just who it is that we're dealing with when you deal with Jesus Christ. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's the almighty son of God. And and here that's what Mark focuses our attention on. He wants us to be reminded of the identity, the true identity and the almighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this part of of Mark 4 and through to the end of chapter 5, which is verses 1 to 43, Mark, Mark focuses our attention on three events. We're going to look at the first one this morning. But three events that serve to demonstrate the immensity of Christ's power. There he shows us in those three texts his great power over the forces of nature itself. That's what he shows us in our text today in the stilling of the storm. Next in chapter 5 he shows us Christ's power over the forces of hell itself. In the casting out of a host of demons from a man who lived among the tombs. Sounds like something out of a horror movie. Uh, and and had been terrorizing the people of the nearby town. They would chain him. I won't preach it ahead of time, but people were chaining him. And what was he doing? He was snapping them. Snapping a man, snapping chains. Uh, You can imagine. And in in a graveyard, how scary that might have been. Well, Jesus comes along and casts the demons out. And we'll see what happens later on. Lastly, in that chapter, chapter 5, he shows power, his almighty power over sickness and death. In the healing of a woman from a disease, in her blood, and raising the daughter of Jairus from the dead. 
So chapter, this, this almost should have been part of chapter 5. If we're going to renumber the chapters, we won't do that. But, but this whole section sh- shows Christ's almighty power over everything, over everything, sin, death, and hell itself. And in fact, this section of Mark's gospel, we're going to see a lot of common themes. If you read through this section uh, as a whole, our, our text this morning in chapter 5, you'll see some common themes. One of those themes that's repeated almost verbatim is that we see both people and demons alike repeatedly falling at Jesus' feet and begging him. Begging him. Another theme is the reaction to the power of Christ was consistently in our passage and the chapter that follows it, one of fear and amazement. It's, it's clearly the theme of this section of Mark's, of Mark's gospel. That fear in some cases, at least in our text and one other one, um, it, it kind of seems counterintuitive to us if you don't already know what to expect when you're, when you're reading it. It's not what you and I would have expected. In our text, what does Jesus do? He rescues his disciples in, in more than one boat, in case we missed that part of it. He rescues them from, from death by storm. This, you know, this is, this is going to be death at sea. And what happens after he st- stills the storm? Are they relieved? Do they go, boy, that was close. Thanks, Jesus. Go back to bed now. Sorry, we woke you up. No, you know, don't let him him sleep next time. But this was pretty bad. You know, we know what we're doing. No, they got more afraid. They went from fearing for their lives to fearing more when he stopped the storm. In the text after this, in chapter 5, when he casts out what the demon's name is Legion. Remember, he says, we are, my name is Legion, for we are many. This poor man, whoever he was, was, was possessed by multiple demons, by a host, basically, of, of demons. He had been terrifying that town around him. But what happens when Jesus casts the demon out, the demons out? When he heals the man, brings him back to his right mind. And the, remember, he casts the demons out into a bunch of pigs. They, they roll off a cliff. The townspeople say, hey, can you stay longer? Let's make a parade. You know, I, I have a friend who's got a, a granny flat. You can stay there as long as you want. No, they, they beg him to leave. They're terrified. What, what kind of thing could make someone more terrified than a possessed man in a graveyard? Well, we find out in the next text, don't we? The power and, and holiness and glory of Christ was terrifying to them. They'd never seen anything like it, and they didn't want to keep seeing something like it. And they asked him to go. And so one of the things that we learn here is that getting a glimpse, even a glimpse of the true power of Jesus Christ can be unsettling. You wouldn't think it would be in some ways, but it really is. Getting a true glimpse of who Jesus Christ is can be an unsettling experience. And we're going to look at, in our text, at least three things uh, from our text. And we're going to lift our outline from the wording of the text, that's always an easy way to remember it. First thing we're going to see is a great storm. A great storm. The next thing we're going to see is a great calm. And lastly, we're going to see a great fear. So a great storm, a great calm, a great fear. Now, if you're of a logical sort, if you tend to think things through, you might say to yourself, that sounds kind of out of order, doesn't it? Shouldn't it be a great storm, a great fear, and a great calm. But as we've already seen a little bit uh, this morning, that's not the order that the text presents it, is it? Because it's not the order that it actually happened. It's counterintuitive 
Yeah, so, to, so to speak. So let's look at the first thing, the great storm. A great storm. It's the first thing we see in our text in verses 35 to 38. Mark writes, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, he being Jesus, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, to set the stage, you know, uh, Mark doesn't give us a lot of details. Oftentimes, his, ten, his account tends to be kind of short and clipped and in a hurry. The, the, worst, the word immediately happens a lot throughout the book. He's always moving things along. So when he gives us details, they're for a reason. And what does he say in the first part of, the ver- of verse 35? On that day, what day was it? The same day he had been ministering and teaching the crowds all these parables. So it's a, it's a long day and it's getting dark. So Jesus must be tired, explains part of the reason for him falling asleep. Uh, but this has been a long day of Jesus ministering to the crowds with his disciples. And Jesus decides that he and his disciples should go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark says there, he says in verse 36, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. I have to admit, when I read that, I, I, I was. It took me a while to think. What could, why would he even add that? What, what, would, what would he have? Done, how would they have taken him differently? What would the difference be? At bare minimum, it might mean more than this, but it probably at least means they left in haste. You know, he didn't get to go pack an overnight bag. He didn't get to you know pack a food. Or they just left. He was tired. They wanted to go, and they just went. Uh, and the fact that it was night also kind of shows that they, they were probably in a little bit of a of a hurry, and Mark also adds that there were other boats that were with him. You know, when you read the rest of the account, nobody even mentions the other boats. It's the boat was filling with water. What about the other boats? I'm sure they weren't exactly dry and, and, and calm. Uh, you know, we don't read anything about those other boats or who was in those boats. Uh, what we do know uh, that those boats were also threatened by the same storm. And those people didn't have the luxury of having Jesus in the back of their boat, for that matter, uh, but we do know there were other witnesses of this miracle. This wasn't a miracle that can only be affirmed uh, or witnessed to or testified to by a few people. It was this whole group that was with Christ at the time. And you might think, if you know your Old Testament and all, when you read this, this passage, it might remind you of the book of Jonah. And there's a lot of reason for that. Not just a storm, not just a boat. There are a, a number of verbal uh, and, and uh, vocabulary Things that are that are the same in that in the story. In fact, uh, our outline you know, with the word "great" being repeated because the word "great" is repeated in our text. It's 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 a form of the word we use this word in our in our language as well. Mega. You know, when something's big, it's mega. A mega sale, a mega whatever. It's a mega storm. It's a mega calm. It's a mega fear. That's that's the same kind of word that the Greek uses there. Well, in Jonah. It's written in Hebrew, not in Greek. But in Jonah, the word great is also used throughout the book of Jonah. It says in the first chapter that God hurled a great storm. He threw a storm at Jonah. God said, Jonah, go this way. Jonah says, ah, thank you very much. I'm going to go this way. And I'm going to go hide in the bottom of the boat. So what does God do? He throws, hurls a storm, a great storm. How does he rescue Jonah when Jonah gets thrown in the water? A great, God sends or appoints a great storm fish. Same 
words, different language, but same kind of word repetition is used in our little tiny text as is used throughout the book of, of Jonah. Uh, what happens with the storm? The storm's going to sink the ship in both cases. People are going to die. They're afraid for their lives. And the one person in the boat that has something to do with it is sleeping in both cases. Now, Jesus wasn't sinning in any way. He was doing God's will. Jonah, on the other hand, was trying to go the other direction. But you can see the parallels here. You can see the parallels in some ways with both, with both stories. Now, how bad was this, was this squall or this storm? And was it a hurricane? We don't know. We really don't know. The boat probably wasn't that big. But he tells us in verse 37, the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. The boat was already filling. That means, what does that mean? The boat was sinking. You know, he doesn't say the boat got some water on it. Their, their, their socks were wet. You know, they were annoyed. It says the boat was filling. The boat fills, the boat sinks. We, we, can, do, we can do that math pretty well. You don't have to be a lifetime fisherman or sailor uh, to do that kind of math. And so they're not stupid. What do they do? They're terrified. We're going to die. You know, here we are. You know, Jesus tells us to go out in the middle of the night across this lake. And look, look, look what's happening. Look what's happening. You know, think about this. At least four of the men on these boats, or on that particular boat, were lifetime fishermen by trade. In fact, Mark tells us that earlier on in the book. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Where does he find them? By the sea, with their nets. And they leave when he says, you come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They all do just that. They all leave. They've been on the water their whole life, possibly. How bad would this storm have to be for them to lose it? For them, I mean, imagine being the other guys on the boat. The guys that weren't lifetime fishermen. And they see the lifetime fishermen freaking out. You know it's bad. You, you know it's pretty bad when that, when that happens. It must have been quite a storm for them to be so afraid for their lives. And to make matters worse again, where do they find Jesus? Asleep on the cushion in the back of the boat. Again, much like Jonah except for the disobedience. Now, uh, you know, think about, put yourselves in their shoes or sandals if you can. Right. Wasn't this trip at night across the Sea of Galilee his idea in the first place? Who, whose idea was this? You know, Tim, and who's sleeping in the back in the back of the boat? You know, how in the world was he sleeping through this storm in the first place? How is anybody humanly able to sleep in a situation like that? We should note one thing here: the fact that he was sleeping. Uh, we should we should see that that points us to his true humanity. We spend a lot of time, and rightly so, focusing on Christ's deity. Don't forget his humanity. He really was tired from a long day of work. He wasn't pretending to sleep. He was sleeping. You know, there's a, there's a very popular but very misguided and unbiblical notion of the Christian life that, that would have you to believe that becoming a Christian solves all of your problems. That becoming a Christian solves all of your problems. You know, very often, I hate, I hate to say this, very often it seems as if the gospel's presented that way. Hey, your life is hard, you know, come to Jesus and everything will be all right. And there's, a, there's some truth to that, right? In the end, everything will be all right. But coming to Christ doesn't solve all of your problems. It solves your biggest problems. Your biggest problem is your sin and being, uh, being cut off from God and under his wrath on account of, of your sin. 
But becoming a Christian doesn't solve all of your problems. We shouldn't present it as if it did. Even a cursory reading of the Bible should dispel any kind of nonsense like that. Our text should serve to teach us otherwise, shouldn't it? Whose idea was it to go across the lake? Jesus. They they, they didn't tell, you know, Jesus didn't say, okay, guys, I want to stay here. And they said, let's now, let's go across the other side. And, you know, he'll come with us. And then the storm came. And then Jesus said, look, I told you to stay here. No, Jesus said, let's go. You, you guys man the boats. You know what you're doing. Let's, let's go across now. They took him just as he was. They didn't, when he said jump, they said, how high? And what happened? A storm hit. The storm hit because they were following Christ. That does, that does happen. Now, it's certainly true that if you're following Jesus Christ, you will cause no doubt, fewer problems for yourself as time goes on through foolishness and sin. It won't come to an end. You're still a sinner, even if you're a redeemed, sanctified, forgiven sinner. But you will, over time, uh, through, through God's work of sanctification in your life, probably cause far fewer problems for yourself through your own sin and foolishness than you used to do. Uh, the life that's lived by faith in obedience to the will of God, it often leads to a much better life in many ways even if not necessarily an easy life. And God in his grace often blesses the sincere, even if far from perfect obedience of his children. All those things are true. Maybe all those things are things that if you're a believer here this morning, you can say amen to and say, yep, I've known that to be the case. Uh, That God has spared me many things in my life uh, that I certainly would have been going on and on and other other, uh, bad things sins and habits that would have caused me all kinds of problems. That God has blessed my far from perfect obedience in my life, and that's all by his, by his grace. But following Christ does not mean smooth sailing, does it? Not literally, not figuratively, uh, as our text would tell us. Sometimes the exact opposite is the case. Not only does following Christ not mean that all your problems go away in this life, sometimes there are some new problems. That's not going to draw a crowd, is it? You know, hey, follow me. Take up your what does he say? Take up your cross and follow me. He kind of implies pretty strongly that there there will be a price to pay in some ways. Sinclair Ferguson writes the following about this this idea. He says sometimes we find ourselves in difficulties because of, because of our own sin and foolishness, but there are times when the Lord Himself will lead us into difficulties. Contrary to the picture sometimes painted of the Christian life, Jesus did not solve all the disciples' problems and protect them from trials and perplexities. In actual fact, sometimes he led them quite deliberately into them. This was such an occasion. They were exactly where they were supposed to be. Maybe you've heard someone say something like this before. You hear people talk about being in the center of God's will and things like that. You should be wanting to do God's will, but what do they usually mean by that? Well, if you're in the center of God's will, then things will be going well. And if things aren't going well, guess where you aren't? In the center of God's will. Now, you might not be doing God's will, and God may chastise you for it. And he may send difficulties your way for it, but difficult... We, we sang a song earlier in the service that talked about God's, you know, sometimes a frowning providence and how God... Uh, God is his own best interpreter of his providence. Sometimes we read it wrong. Sometimes Just the fact that we have difficulties in our lives doesn't mean that we are outside of the will of God or that we're not following Christ. 
Sometimes it's the exact opposite is, is the case. But Christ sees us through it. Now let us remember that there, are, there may be times in your life as a believer in Christ, even as someone following Jesus in all sincerity and truth, where you find yourself wondering, like the disciples did, if Jesus really cares that you're perishing. You may be tempted by your circumstances, your afflictions, to think that somehow Jesus is sort of asleep in the back of the boat, so to speak, or that he doesn't care about your trials and your afflictions. Have you ever felt like that? We probably don't say it in polite company, right? Oh, no, never. I never felt like that. Sometimes you do feel like that. Sometimes you do wonder. Like you know Jesus is there. He's with us always, even to the end of the age. But sometimes we read our circumstances the wrong way and we think, Maybe, is he really there? If he's there, would this still be happening? And we shouldn't think like that. You know, uh, if you haven't ever felt like that, you, you very well may feel that way at some point in the future. And so let this text prepare you ahead of time for that. This text reminds us that the Christian life is not always smooth sailing and that the presence of storms doesn't mean the absence of the Lord or his watchful care over us. Sometimes he actually leads us into storms to reveal himself to us more, that we might know him better and learn to trust him even more. Certainly that's the case with this, this account, and I think that's one of the things that you and I need to learn and relearn and be reminded of from it. And that brings us to the second point of our text, a great calm, from the great storm to a great calm. Verse 39 to 40, Mark writes, And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, this is a dangerous thing to say, but, you know, if you were Jesus, what would, what would you have done? I know what I would have done. I would have rebuked. Who would you have rebuked first, the storm or them? I would have rebuked, I'm a jerk, I would have rebuked them first. Uh, you know, sometimes when in our house, uh, you know, when the kids, they never disobey their parents, but once in a blue moon when they do, when they run and they bang their leg on something and stub their toe and they hurt, uh, Rebecca has to tell me to knock. I, I lecture them first. I'm like, you know, didn't I just tell you to stop running? That's what you get. You know, you, I told you not to run, so you whacked your arm. You know, and she's like, no, no, do that later. You know, well, he's much better, uh, to say the least, than, than I am. He doesn't rebuke them first at all. He rebukes the storm. And he chastises, in a sense, the, the sea itself. He says, he rebukes the wind and told the sea, peace be still. He takes care of the problem first. He's merciful on his disciples in their weakness. And notice the great windstorm didn't just die down, did it? It didn't just die down, it stopped. Mark says it ceased. You know, it ceased. The waves that had been breaking into the boat and filling it with water were gone. You know, there had been a great squall, now there was a great calm. Now think about that. You know, we, the unbelieving mind always tries to, to interpret or explain away these things. And so we picture it as something different than what it was. We say, well, this wind, you know, it just sort of died down. And so the waves, over time, finally... No, that's not what it says. The wind stopped. And what happened to the sea? Glass. That's not normal, right? 
let's say that you know we could explain it through human means, through through whatever, and it wasn't really a miracle. Somehow the wind, for whatever reason, stops. What happens to the water? Does it stop? Do the waves not just keep going and going for a while? No, they, that they would keep going for quite a while. Even if the wind stops, they're still taking water on the boat. That's not what happens here. The wind stops. The waves go calm. A great, a mega calm, to use the the way that the Greek puts it. Now think about what this scene must have looked like. You know, but moments before this, when Christ, right before he's getting woken up, they probably couldn't hear themselves think. It was so loud and so chaotic. Now they could hear a pin drop. Imagine what that must have been like to see something like that. And think about this, you know, uh, I don't know about you. I, I talk to in, inanimate objects all the time, uh, right? Uh, my car doesn't obey me the way I want it to go, or my computer, usually that one. Whatever it may be, you know, but I don't expect it to listen. You know, I may, I may you know, uh, utter, utter uh, the wrath of God down upon, upon these things, um, but they don't usually answer back. Well, Jesus rebuked and commanded inanimate objects, and they obeyed. He's the only one that can do that. Uh, Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32, describes something. Listen, listen to this psalm, this part of the Psalm 107, and, and picture, your, picture in the back of your mind Jonah chapter 1 and our text here. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let, him, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The same thing is true in our text. Who sent the storm in the, in the first place in Psalm 107? The Lord did. The Lord sent the storm or to use the words of the psalm, commanded it and raised it, verse 25, and then he stilled it in verse 29. Note also, verse 29, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. The waves of the sea were hushed. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says to it here in, in Mark chapter 4? In fact, the New American Standard translation of this verse says this, Jesus, quote, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. Exact same wording in the English as Psalm 107. So Jesus is the Lord, and he's even the Lord of the storm itself. It does his bidding. He sends it, he stops it. He's in control of all things. Now, think about the almighty power of Jesus that's displayed for you and I and the disciples in this miracle. Think about how much power he puts on display here. Mankind especially in our day, has accomplished a great many things down through the centuries. But I think you and I are reminded again and again that in many ways we're, we're really utterly helpless against certain things. You know, Think about the power of, of major storms and natural disasters. 
You know, everywhere, it seems like everybody has, everywhere you go, there's something. You know, whether it's earthquakes or hurricanes in the southeast or tornadoes in the Midwest and in some other places, wildfires, as we just had one out here, uh, there's something awful about them. There's something awe-inspiring and terrifying to these things. When you, when you saw the footage, if you saw the footage of the wildfire just recently in San Bernardino County, you can't even wrap your mind around it. it it's, it's, you, can't even, you can't put yourself in that situation. When we had the wildfires here, I'm sure many of you remember those and will never forget them. They, they remind you how small you are. We think we have it all under control, and these things happen, and we think, wow, I'm a speck. I'm, I'm not in control of anything. I, my little kingdom isn't worth much of anything. And the storms of life, both literal and figurative, I think have a twofold teaching effect. And that's the first one. They show us or remind us or teach us just how small and powerless and vulnerable you and I really are. And it's a scary thing, but it's a good thing to be reminded of that. I think it's a necessary thing for us to be reminded of that truth. We often, uh, I think we often mistakenly, mistakenly think that we're much bigger than we really are, that we're in control of much more than we really are, that we're more, more powerful than we really are, that we're bulletproof when we're really not. And these storms teach us differently, don't they? They remind us how small we actually are on our own. And what's the other thing that these storms teach? They teach us how small we are, and they teach us, or they should teach us, how big God is. How big God is. That's also a good thing for us to be reminded of. Anything that gives us a bigger view of God serves us well in the end. And, and that leads us to our final point, our third point, and it's the great fear. You know, the sea was now calm, a great calm, right? It wasn't just less, less bad, it was a great a great calm. What about the disciples? Again, were they able to breathe a sigh of relief and relax? Did their heart rate go down or up? It went up. It went up. You, know, you wouldn't think that would be the case. If you and I were writing the Bible, we wouldn't have written it that way. I wouldn't have written it that, that way. I would have said great storm, great fear, great calm. Jesus stopped the storm. Everybody threw a party. You know, everybody got was happy. They got to the shore and said, "Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened." You know, but hey, Jesus did it again. Good job, Jesus. You know, no, that, that's not how it. That's not how it is. We would have written it that way, but the Bible, as usual, has that peculiar ring of truth to it. It tells things in a way that we wouldn't have expected. And after the storm had stopped and the great calm came over the sea. The Lord Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Why are you so afraid? He doesn't say, Why were you so afraid? I'm sure that's included. That's how I read it most of the time when I read it. Hey, why were you guys so worried? I was here. You know, and that's, that's part of it, I'm sure. But he says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now remember, what, what did they call Jesus back in verse 38? What did they address him as? Teacher. Nothing wrong with that. They didn't, they didn't address him wrongly. He's not teaching them a lesson for calling him the wrong thing. They called him teacher. And here it's as if Jesus is saying, you know, have you not learned anything yet? All this time you've been with me, you still don't get it. You still don't understand. Did they really not believe after all this time? Didn't they trust him after all this time? Didn't they realize yet who he was? Is what he's really saying. 
you still don't realize who's in the boat with you. <laughs> I'm not just some traveling rabbi. You know, I'm not just a, a guy who's really skilled at teaching or can do some tricks. You know, I'm the Lord. The Lord is with you in the boat to watch over you. And Mark, Mark points out to us the disciples were actually more afraid after the wind. It isn't that they just didn't stop fearing. Their fear actually went up. Their fear actually increased after the wind had stopped. He says in verse 41, they were filled with great fear. Literally, it's they feared a great fear. We don't really talk like that, so the translators smooth it out. Um, why? What, what explains their fear? Why did they fear a great fear after they were safe? After their lives were being spared from, from the storm? Well, I think the, the, the truth of it is they got a glimpse, even just a glimpse, of who Jesus really is. That he's the Son of God. They had the Son of God in the boat with them. The Son of God in the boat. You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You know, in a sense, what we learn here is that if you fear the Lord, you'll fear the storms of life much less. The more you fear God, the less you'll fear the storms. You'll see them in perspective. God is the Lord over those things. Those things that are so powerful, they make us look like ants. Well, God makes them look like ants. They're nothing to him. They're under his command and control. They had been afraid of the storm, but they began to realize that the person who was in the boat with them, that his power dwarfed even those storms. And what did they say in verse 41? You know, our text, I don't know if you've noticed this, our text is filled with questions. Everyone's always asking questions whether it be Jesus asking the disciples or the disciples asking Jesus, you know, don't you care that we're perishing? Or this final question they ask themselves, who then is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, the scriptures, I think, in this text, um, they press you and I to ask the very same question. That's the question of the text, isn't it? That's the question that you're supposed to ask yourself and ask each other. Who is this? The old King James says, What manner of man is this? I like how that puts it. What kind of man is this? It's not normal that the wind and the seas obey him. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, the one who is the ruler of all nature, of the whole cosmos? Do you believe that he's the Son of God? Have you called upon his name for salvation from your sin? You know, I could have added a fourth, a fourth point. I won't, but this might serve as it as a postscript. You know, we've seen a great storm, a great calm, a great fear. Well, the whole thing points to a great Savior, doesn't it? It points to a great Savior. Jesus Christ is the only one who can deliver you from the storm of God's wrath on the account of your sin. For he took that wrath upon himself on the cross and conquered sin and death and rising from the grave on the third day so that all who believe in him might live forever let's let's pray heavenly father we thank you for these accounts in your gospels we thank you for all of your work but we thank you for these accounts that have such a ring of truth to us that it, we we can't even imagine being on that boat in that situation uh, this, we, we focus on the storm we focus on the miracle uh, and rather than focusing on what what it points to that that you revealed yourself to your disciples through that storm through your power over it that they might trust you more. They might know you better. Give us grace to learn the same lesson. Give us grace as your people to fear you and so not fear man and not fear any storm that comes 
our way. Give us grace to, to, to trust in you that even when it seems like you're asleep on the back of the boat, uh, that you're not, that your watchful care over us never, never takes a break, never ceases, that you care for us at all times, and you work all things together for our good, no matter how bad they are from a human perspective. We thank you that you care for us that much that you sent your Son to take on the storm of your wrath in our place that we might be forgiven and accepted as righteous in your sight because of his righteousness put to us in our account only by faith and by your grace. And we ask if anyone here this morning does not yet know you, that you might open their eyes, that they might see Christ for who he is, not just a great religious teacher, not just the founder of a religion, but but the Son of God himself, and the one who, even though he was the Son of God, uh, laid down his life, uh, became a man and laid down his life for our salvation, and took it back up again. On the third day, he rose from the dead so we might know that he has conquered death and that we too will live again as well. For it's in his name we pray and for his glory. Amen.